Uh, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And now we get into the thick of the word. We're doing our lightning speed study of the book of Luke, have been for five years. We're up to Luke 17. This is what we do here. This is, uh, this is a seminar, weekend seminar. This really isn't church. We call it church. We don't call it church that much, but everyone else does. Uh, but, but this is just a gathering, an expression of the church, and we use it to have seminars on the kingdom and to teach. This is a class. That's why we're giving assignments at the end of the thing now. And um, uh, so we're going to really get into this, this uh, passage here this morning, and as we go through the book of Luke. Um, here's the thing. We're, we're up to Luke 17, and we'll, we're dealing with 10 verses. And these 10 verses are challenging for a number of reasons. For one thing, there's four different teachings in these 10 verses, and each of those teachings are hard to understand. They're difficult to interpret. On top of that, it's hard to see how they relate together. Uh, what is the, 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 the connecting point between them? They all seem like they're just kind of randomly thrown together. In fact, if you consult the commentaries, you'll find that some commentaries actually say that, that Luke just sort of took some random teachings of Jesus and just sort of poured them in at this point. I don't think so. I, I think that Jesus and Luke are smarter than that. But sometimes you've got to really dig to kind of find out what's going on. So we're going to dig this morning. Are you ready to dig? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Okay, I encourage you to take notes on this class. Uh, I'm going to try to make clear what each of these four teachings are. And in the process of doing that, I think we'll see how they relate together. The overriding theme, and this is the title for this lesson, is don't be like the Pharisees. And we're going to see that that is woven throughout this, but it's not obvious. You've got to dig in order to get it. So before I even start, let's pray. Father, open up our ears, open up our minds. And for all those who are listening through podcasts, our podrishners, our virtual community, God, we pray that you'd be opening up their ears whenever it is that they're listening to this. And prepare our hearts to receive your word. Give us a disciplined mind that doesn't settle for cliches and soft, light teachings, but is willing to dig to get to the meat. And then, God, most importantly, open up our hearts to receive it and have our lives changed and our attitudes changed and revolutionized by your revolutionary kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Here we go. And I've got exactly 37 minutes to do this. Okay, here we go. Luke 17, verses 1 through 2. Jesus said to his disciples... Things that cause people to stumble, scandalon in the Greek, are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Okay, now notice that here Jesus is talking to his disciples. That's different than what we've had the last couple of weeks when he was talking to and responding to the Pharisees. The story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus was, was, was done in response to the Pharisees. But now his focus is on his disciples. And that's important because what we're going to see here is in all these teachings, as random as they may look, he's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Now the question that we have to answer is this. Who are these little ones that he's talking about? And what does it mean to cause them to stumble? And why is this such a serious offense? So severe that it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Let's let's think about this. 
With regard to the little ones, there's really a, a number of different opinions uh, out there about that. Some think that the little ones are little children, and to cause them to stumble is to do something that would keep them from coming into the faith. Uh, the trouble with that interpretation, however, is that Jesus here refers to people. Uh, the people are going to stumble, and the word he uses is the word that's used for adult. It doesn't mean children. Others think the little ones refer to new believers, and to cause them to stumble is to cause them to fall into sin. Or some think it refers to new believers, and to cause them to stumble means that they somehow get a false teaching. So this is a warning against false teachers who cause them to, to go astray. And those are possible interpretations, but there's nothing in the context that would suggest that. There's no evidence for that. It's a guess. It's a guess. It's always better to try to let the text interpret itself and to ask, is there anything in the context here that maybe provides clues as to who these little ones are? Uh, I would suggest to you this. The context does tell us, I think, who the little ones are. You know, notice that Jesus says, these little ones. And he assumes that the disciples are going to know who he's talking about. Now, who has he just been talking about? Well, two verses earlier, there was the rich man and Lazarus. And I submit to you that Lazarus was one such little one. He's referring to the little people in the world, the ones who are overlooked. The little people in contrast to the big people, the important people, the rich people, the powerful people. The little ones are those who are on the outside. The little ones are those who are marginalized. The little, little ones are those who are easily overlooked. The, the, at the bottom of the social strata, the little ones are those who the big and mighty people think are cursed by God because they've got diseases and infirmities and ailments and things of the sort. Uh, little ones are those who are assumed by the high and mighty people to be on the outside of the kingdom because they've got the unacceptable kind of sins and, and they can be judged. The little people are, are the kind of people that Jesus has been ministering to throughout his, the whole gospel. He was bringing the kingdom to these little ones and bypassing the big ones in the process. And so I submit to you that the little ones are all the, 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 the crippled, the lame, the infirm, the blind, the poor, the oppressed, the judged, those are the folks that he's referring to. Now, what does he mean when he talks about causing them to stumble? The word stumble is scandal. We get the word scandal from it. But it doesn't just mean some kind of a sin. It can refer to and often refers to anything that trips a person up, any obstacle that's put in their way. For example, Paul, a number of times in the New Testament, refers to the cross as a scandalon. Uh, it, it's an obstacle. It's an offense. But of course, the, the cross isn't a sin, is it? It just causes uh, the, the wise of this world to stumble. Uh, they can't believe that God is really like that. Notice also that in this passage, Jesus doesn't blame the little ones for stumbling. He puts the blame entirely on those who cause them to stumble. So I don't think the stumbling he's talking about is some kind of sin. In the light of all this, I submit to you this, that what Jesus is saying in these first two verses of chapter 17 is basically this. Woe to anyone who acts like a Pharisee by causing one of these little ones like Lazarus to trip up, to hit an obstacle on their way to coming in the kingdom. Woe to anyone who is acting like a Pharisee by putting an obstacle in the way of the poor or the judge, the worst of the sinners coming into the kingdom, who puts some kind of barricade Woe to anyone who acts like a Pharisee by creating a holy club out of the religious community and thereby putting up walls that people have to jump over in order to become part of the kingdom community. Woe to anybody 
who acts like a Pharisee, who gets life by contrasting themselves with others and judging others and looking down on others, getting life from that rather than from the free grace of God. When I consider how many people, and I suspect it's in the thousands, if not millions, how many people are turned off to faith in Jesus because of the judgment they've received from Christians, it seems to me that we've got to take this teaching and this warning very, very seriously. The holy club mentality, we are on the inside, but those folks are on the outside, and here's the walls that they got to jump over, the obstacles, the scandal on that they have to cross if they're going to come into the kingdom. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. And the warning is really, really dire. The reason is because embracing the little ones, the least of these, the outsiders, the downtrodden, embracing them is at the heart of the kingdom. While judging people is at the heart of everything that the kingdom opposes. In contrast to the Pharisees' heart, kingdom people are supposed to have this heart of outrageous, outrageous, even scandalous humility. Whereas the Pharisee looks down on others and gets life by contrasting themselves positively with others, uh, the kingdom heart, Jesus says, is to do the opposite of that. Whatever sin you think you see in someone else's uh, eye, uh, you, you consider that to be a mere dust particle compared to the sin in your life, which is like a tree trunk sticking out of your eye. Their sin may be as major by social standards the way society and religion judges them, but you're to see it as a mere dust particle compared to your sin. And your sin may be as considered minor by the religious establishment or by the society, but you're to see that as a giant tree trunk sticking out of your eye. He reverses all this judgment. And he says, whatever judgment you give is the judgment you'll receive. He's telling us, as I've taught elsewhere, I have a book on this called Repenting of Religion, to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the foundational sin of the Bible. It's the sin of judgment. It's the sin of Phariseeism. It's a sin that runs rampant in all religion. The heart of the kingdom is the opposite of that, to collapse all the judgment mechanisms. And where you've got a community of people doing that, well, you have a community of people that looks very different from the Pharisaical community. Uh, it's to be a kingdom community characterized by scandalous, non-judgmental love. The kind of love that Jesus manifested, which is why he attracted to himself the prostitutes and the tax collectors, whereas the Pharisees shunned them. It's really interesting that Jesus was a scandal to the Pharisees because he hung out and ate with the tax collectors and the, and the, and the prostitutes, uh, whereas the, the Pharisees were scandalized by Jesus. It's okay to scandalize the Pharisees, but don't be scandalizing the little ones. And the bottom line, folks, is this. Unless a person has specific, specifically invited you in on their life to have an opinion about them, to help them live out the radical kingdom, unless there's that sort of a covenantal relationship where you're going to help one another live out the kingdom, unless that's the case, then not only... Do you not need to have any judgmental opinions about any person? You're forbidden to have any judgmental opinions about any person. The one opinion that you're allowed with regard to every person on the planet who hasn't invited you in on their life, the only opinion we're allowed is God's opinion. And God expressed his opinion on Calvary. And our most fundamental job as kingdom people is to agree with God about that. So every person we see, our attitude is to be, that God, they, they were worth you dying for. They have unsurpassable worth. Whatever else we may see or whatever else we may think or whether we agree with their politics or agree with their dress or agree with their lifestyle, it doesn't matter. Who anointed you to be the arbiter and fixer of humanity? No, you're just the humble servant uh, who's called to be a blesser of humanity and our only job is to agree with God about that. It doesn't matter what we see. What matters is what God sees and he apparently thought they were dying for. 
And it is the most freeing thing in the world, folks, to be free from this uh, judger of the world mindset. It's just so freeing. When you get to the point where you don't need to have an opinion about everybody, you don't need to have a mindset about them, or you're going to fix them or whatever, uh, man, you let that go and it uncorks. Just walk around in the mall and blessing people. Did that yesterday at the Mall of America. I was there with my grandson. Just blessing people. And it unleashes something in you. It's just that there's a beauty that starts to get manifest and you just start blessing people and, and you start just agreeing with God and seeing what God sees and it's beautiful. So he's saying, don't be an obstacle to these little ones, uh, but rather uh, be a blessing machine. The only ones you need to have uh, you know, any other opinion about are those who have invited you in on their life, which leads to my next point and the next set of passages. We all need people involved in our life. Uh, who are helping us live out this radical kingdom. And so Jesus goes on in verse 3 and 4. It looks random on the surface, but I think it's intrinsically connected to what he's teaching here. He says, if a brother or sister sins, here he uses the word harmartia, uh, which is the word for sin. He didn't call stumbling sin in the first two verses. If a brother or sister sins, means missing the mark, against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, that can be very irritating. But if they seven times come back to you and say, I repent, you must forgive them. This isn't a recommendation. This is a command. Okay. Notice this. The first two verses were instructing us about how we're to not uh, provide, uh, make obstacles for the little ones coming in the kingdom. But now Jesus talks about relationships between brothers and sisters um, and, and how to handle sin in that context. The sin is against you. This is, this is personal. It presupposes a very personal sort of context, a personal relationship. It's not about a stranger. With regard to strangers, whatever they do, we're only allowed one opinion, and that is that they're worth Jesus dying for. But in the context of close-knit Christian community, there's a place for something else going on here. The context of this teaching, as with so much else of the New Testament, is the, 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 the church of the first century. We read about it in the book of Acts. It's the church where people gather together in each other's houses. Uh, probably 15 to 20 people, uh, usually. And they broke bread together, and they prayed together, and they encouraged one another. Uh, they worshiped together, they studied the Bible together, and they did missions together. Uh, in a hostile environment, they were a close-knit community. Sometimes they'd meet daily uh, in order to grow in the kingdom and to carry out the kingdom. And like most teachings in the New Testament, this teaching in these two verses hardly makes any sense at all if you try to extrapolate it out of that first century close-knit house church context. These early church communities were so close-knit that most scholars agree that when Jesus says, if someone sins against you, that doesn't necessarily mean that the sin was directed personally towards you. Rather, the community saw itself as so organically related that any sin that a person got involved in was a sin against the community, the community that covenanted together to avoid that kind of behavior. And so the person who witnessed the sin, it was a sin against them. And the instruction of the New Testament is this, is that when you see someone in your close-knit kingdom community, and we're not talking about strangers on the street, you only have to have one opinion about them, and that's God's opinion. But when we're in covenantal context together, doing life together, and, and someone begins to go astray, they're missing the mark, you're supposed to go to them alone, and you correct them. 
And if that doesn't work, you bring two or three others, it says in Matthew 18. And if that doesn't work, you do a whole community intervention. The idea is that they're so organically related that if, if any part of the body suffers, they all suffer. To some degree, we all stand or fall together. Now, that idea of being this organically related is so foreign to our hyper-individualistic Western mindset, we have trouble even conceiving of it. And yet, I'm here to tell you this morning that it is foundational to kingdom living. Absolutely foundational. By God's own design, we're to have other people wrapped up in our lives. By God's design, we're to be organically related to other people. We're to have relationships with people that we've covenanted with to help them live out the kingdom and they help us live out the kingdom. We're to have people involved in our lives that we know love us and care about us and are there to encourage us when we fall and maybe support us when we can't support ourselves financially and and, and they're there for us. But they also know us so well, they notice when we're starting to go astray and they care enough to say something. By God's own design, we need that. And that's why I encourage everybody to be seeking out meaningful covenant relationships, covenant groups. And if you're in a covenant group, I encourage you to always be pushing the envelope a little bit forward. How do we go beyond having just sort of serendipitous acquaintances and and rather to have a mission to our group? And the mission is to grow in the kingdom and to build the kingdom. It's the mission for our lives, right? It's got to be the mission of our group. And that that includes having fun and, and doing a lot of good stuff like that but it also means that there's a purpose and intentionality that you bring to the group. We all need that. And in those organically related covenant groups, close-knit communities where you're helping one another grow and do kingdom stuff, in those groups and only in those groups is it appropriate sometimes to rebuke a brother or sister. Now, the rebuke is not some kind of self-righteous chastisement of a little child, some... uh, you know, spanking that you give somebody. Shame on you, you shouldn't be doing that. It's not like that. It doesn't involve hollering. Paul says we're to speak the truth to one another in love. In love. So that we may all grow up. The way we grow up is by having truth speakers in our life. But you've got to do it in love. If love isn't your motivation, if anger or retaliation or anything else is your motivation, then shut up. And, and, and you go pray until you get the right motivation and then come back to this. Uh, because speaking the truth for some other motive is, is usually more harmful than good. But it's it's involved uh, being motivated by love. And Paul says in Galatians 6 that it's to be done gently with the purpose of restoration. So it's just like this. You know, you're in a community together. You're doing life together. You're sharing things. You've built trust with one another. You've covenanted together. And one brother notices another brother beginning to change a little bit, spending less time with his wife, kind of getting callous towards his wife, being away from his children too much, spending too much time at the office. Maybe there's other things going on. It is appropriate in that context if it was a stranger, they didn't invite your opinion, so you don't need to have an opinion. But if it's a brother or sister, well, then it's appropriate to go and say, John, or whatever your name is, I'm concerned about this. Here's what I'm seeing. I could be wrong, but here's what I'm seeing. It seems to me that, you know, you're not caring for your wife and blah, 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 blah. And that is a kind of rebuke out of love. And you're calling on them to turn and change their ways. One covenant group I had heard about a uh, number of people involved in, in this group. And, and they, they wanted to get serious about simplifying their lives. And several of the people in this group were in debt way over their head. Uh, they realized that they had spending problems. And so the group covenanted to sort of become, uh, to take it to the next level and be somewhat responsible for each, to one another financially. 
and that if they're going to make major expenditures, uh, to discuss that. Is this really something that we need? They wanted to swim upstream against the principalities and powers of consumerism in this culture, and that's a good thing. So they made this covenant that they're going to hold one another accountable. And uh, several weeks later, I'm told one of the couples went out and bought a giant 72-inch $3,000 television set that they couldn't afford and really didn't need. Now, most of the people in the group didn't know what to do, so it's kind of awkward, so they just sort of, you know, let it go. They were invited over to the house to say, look at our new TV set. And everyone was thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, how come, I thought we were going to talk about this. But, you know, we're in Minnesota, and we don't like to rock the boat. So everyone kind of shuts up. One of the people, however, alone, in private, went and said, I'm concerned about this. And we talked about some of the bill problems and the, our spending issues, and, and, and I'm, not, you know, I'm not here to judge you. You know that I love you, but, but, but we had agreed to talk about these kind of things, and, and this wasn't talked about at all, or, you know, and, and just bringing this you know, kind of to their awareness. And, um, and see, if you don't do that, well, then, then the message is, well, then it, it's okay to not be accountable. And that means that your covenant to be held accountable is just words. If you don't act on it, well, then it's just words. And so it was really good and appropriate for this person in love and gently and in private to go and confront something, and it actually had a, a good result. Now, maybe you're sitting here listening to me, the podcast or in the auditorium, and, and you're saying to yourself, there's no freaking way that anyone's going to tell me what television set I can and cannot buy. What I do with my money, what television set I want is my business, and no one has a right to poke their nose into it. And you're right, no one has a right to poke your nose into it, their nose into it. But see, that, that is, I understand that mindset, but that, that is so American, and that is the problem. Right, no one can poke their nose, should be poking their nose into your business, but I'm telling you, you need to invite people to poke their nose in. Uh, you need, we all need, here's the thing, if we live in that mindset, if we live in that mindset, this is my business, no one has the right to tell me how to treat my wife and my kids, no, this is me, well, then you will have nothing but rather superficial relationships, and I can guarantee you, you're not going to be swimming upstream significantly against the principalities and powers of this culture. You may think you are, but you're making little baby steps, and, and, but you're measuring it by a real jaded standard, namely yourself. We all need mirrors in our life. We all need people to speak into our life, people who know us good enough when we're going astray, people that we covenant with to hold us accountable. And that's not a judgment thing or a, or a self-righteous thing. That's a love thing. Because uh, the goal here is to, for the bride to make herself ready. The goal here is for us to you know, be preparing our lives for, for, for the return of the Lord. The goal here is to manifest the kingdom as much as possible. And to do that, we need one another. We need people who know us, who have buy-in, who love us. And this can't happen overnight. It takes years of living together and working through issues and building trust with one another. You can't put eight people in a room together, strangers, and say, well, now tell each other your finances and hold each other accountable. It doesn't work like that. Uh, yeah, but, but, but we all need to be moving in this direction of building these kind of relationships where we care enough to confront in love and gently. And when a person repents, Jesus says, you must forgive. Repent means to turn around. It's different than just saying, I'm sorry. That's an apology. Now, it may be sincere, maybe insincere, but words are just words. Repentance happens when a person says, I'll make a life change. And uh, maybe there's things that the group does to say, okay, we'll, we'll help you do that. But that's what repentance is. And as long as they're willing to repent, it doesn't matter how many times they've fallen, they must be received back into the community. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because the kingdom is not some kind of contest about how far you've grown so far. It's not where you're at. The kingdom is about what direction are you heading. The kingdom is a river. We're flowing. We're supposed to be growing. 
And so it may be that a person relatively new in the walk has got, you know, rather immature things uh, that they keep on stumbling over. Maybe you don't even get that. How can you be stumbling over that kind of thing? But that doesn't matter. As, if they get back up and, and, and repent, that means their heart intention is to go in a certain direction. And that's what qualifies a person as a kingdom. In fact, in some ways, a person who is really early on stumbling over a lot of maybe childish things, but they keep getting back up and repenting, they may be more kingdom than a person who's got a, a character that's really kind of, uh, you know, already grown quite a bit over the last 20, 30 years, but who now isn't growing because that person is now a stagnant. What matters is not where you're at. It's, it's a matter of what is the orientation of the heart and what direction are you growing. And as long as a person gets up and repents, they are to be forgiven and received back into the kingdom community, and all debts washed away. Now, there's a third teaching we come to, and it looks completely random. The disciples are at this point going to ask a question that seems completely random. They say, in response to this teaching of Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, well, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Increase our faith. Why would they ask that after a teaching about the little ones and a teaching about the need to forgive? What's that got to do with the price of cucumbers in Siberia during January? It, it seems completely random. But I think if we dig into it a little bit, we'll see that it's not random at all. It's actually very profound. Faith in the New Testament isn't a mere belief. It's not about believing certain propositions. At least it's not only that. Nor is it psychological certainty where you're just convinced something's going to happen. People today often turn faith into sort of this magical thing where if you just believe it enough, if you just make yourself certain about it enough, it will happen. And there's Christian versions of this and there's non-Christian versions of this. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. And then, and then they teach you that if you just focus on that gold necklace you want it so bad, I do believe I will, that, that necklace is coming to me. Well, then we're taught in the secret that the universe will find a way to bring it to you. That's right. If you just have an, there's a magnet there. If you have the positive thoughts, you align your thoughts and are positive enough, everything's there going to work for you and, and what you want you're going to get and the Mercedes will be yours and the nice house and the, and, and, and the car and the new spouse. I mean, it all is going to come to you because the universe is there to serve you and uh, that's their definition of faith. And I, I, by the way, folks, I really like Oprah a lot. I really, 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 really like her. But some of the books she recommends aren't so good. And so you just kind of want to be a little cautious about that. <laughs> that message was brought to you by ADD, going wild this morning. <laughs> no, you know, the, 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 some of the, 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 the secret, the, 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 it's all over the place. And people are reading this thing and believing it. And there's some truth in it, you know, that, that you are, that, you know, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they and, 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 and whatnot. But the idea that the world magically is there to meet your needs by thinking positively is just, it's certainly not New Testament faith. New Testament faith is not mere belief and it's not psychological certainty. New Testament faith, pistis is the Greek word, it's a covenantal term, like so much else in the New Testament. And in, in covenant, it means you have faith in your covenant partner and you're keeping faith with your covenant partner. It's about having faith and being faithful, having trust and being trustworthy. Faith involves all of that. And so when the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith, they're saying, Lord, increase our trust in you and increase our trustworthiness in you. And the reason they ask that now, I think is very clear. 
Jesus has told them that they have to have this outrageous, scandalous love for the little ones, the outsiders, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and all the rest. And then Jesus says that you're to forgive your brother or sister endlessly. As many times as they fall, you're to keep on doing that. And the disciples here rightly realize that there's no way they can love like that and no way they can forgive like that on their own. And so they humbly say, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, if we're going to live like this and love like this and forgive like this, we need you to do a work in our heart. We need you to transform us. We need you to be working to make us faithful covenant partners. They're really saying, Lord, help us live out the kingdom that you just described. Because the truth is this, kingdom life is not primarily, in fact, it's not ever, a matter of just trying to obey certain rules on the basis of your self-effort. Kingdom life is primarily a matter of God transforming your heart. Your job is to yield, but God, through the Holy Spirit working inside you, begins to change things. And, and unless that's going on, there's no way we're going to live out the kingdom. Unless God is working in our heart and the Holy Spirit's purging our heart, there's no way we're going to love like Jesus loves, including loving our enemies and loving the little ones. There's no way we're going to collapse all the judgment mechanisms. There's no way we're going to forgive uh, uh, endlessly. But if we are willing to yield to the Holy Spirit and humbly ask the Lord to be working in our heart, well, now all things are possible. And so Jesus here says... If you have just the littlest bit of faith, like a mustard seed, you'll say to this mulberry tree, be removed and planted in the sea, and it will be done. Now, here's what he's getting at. A mulberry tree was the deepest rooted tree in Palestine. And so he's saying, if you have enough faith, you'll take that deep rooted tree and move it to the sea. He's using hyperbole here, which is is an exaggeratory expression, very common in the ancient uh, Near East. Jesus uses it all the time. But what he's saying here is this. If you keep that attitude, asking me to give you faith, asking me to transform your heart, if you keep that attitude, then you can't imagine what you're going to be capable of. Uh, If you keep praying, Lord, increase our faith. Loving the little ones like I told you to do and forgiving one another, that will be nothing compared to what will happen to you and the transformation that will take place if you'll keep that humble attitude, asking God to increase your faithfulness. And as many of us can testify, as, as, you, as you maintain that humble dependency on God to transform your heart from the inside out, you gradually find, don't you, that your mindset begins to change and some of your attitudes begin to change and, and you begin to love people that you previously were unable to love. You begin to care about people in ways you never cared about before. Your life begins to be altered. Things that you desired so strongly, stop, you stop desiring them. And other things that you didn't ever desire, you begin to desire. He begins to change you from the inside out. You begin to get free of all those uh, habitual, instinctive judgments that we have towards the little ones. And that frees you to, to, to love in ways that you never otherwise could love. As God does a work in your heart, and it can only be God working in your heart. This isn't a self-effort contest, folks. But as God works in your heart, you find you begin to love like God and begin to forgive like God. And now, and now, your life is becoming an expression of the kingdom. Literally, the kingdom of God is coming to you. God is bringing the kingdom to you because you're becoming a dome over which he is king. The kingdom of God. And that goal, that, that folks, is, is the goal of everything. So the attitude here is one of total reliance. If we're going to love the little ones, like Jesus says, and forgive one another as much as Jesus says, we need to have an attitude of total reliance on the Lord, transforming our heart. And our job is not to quench the Spirit, but just to yield to what God's doing in our life. And that leads to this final section. 
which again looks completely random. But in fact, I believe is summing up the teaching of the whole, the whole passage. Jesus says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing uh, or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Jesus here is appealing, Jesus here is appealing to a very common phenomenon in the first century. It's a slave-master relationship. He's not condoning it. He's just using it. It's accepted in the first century, so he's going to use it to make a point. The line between the master and the servant was absolute. Servants, in fact, had no rights. That's why you could translate this slave. Uh, they were usually were people who had gotten themselves so into debt, they now had to work themselves out of debt, and they forfeited all the rights to do it. Or there were people who were belonged to conquered lands and were made slaves. But they had no rights. When the master, when Jesus refers to the master saying, come sit down and eat, he's not just saying, hey, would you like a donut? Uh, eating together in, the, in first century Jewish culture was a form of saying we are equals. That's why when Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the Pharisees, it was so scandalous because he's really saying, you're part of my tribe. Uh, and so what's, what's going on here is the master, if he were to say, come and eat with us, he's really saying, in reward for you doing what a servant's supposed to do, we're now going to relieve you of all other servant duties, and you, can now, you now have family, master status. Jesus is saying, no one does that. Then in verse 8 he says, wouldn't he, the master, rather say, servant, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink, but not at our table, of course. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The word thank there is not just a little polite thank you, but it's, it has a connotation of, of repayment. Will he repay him for doing what a servant is supposed to do? And the answer is no. So then verse 10 sums it all up. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, he's telling us to put ourselves now in the servant position, we should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, unworthy here, a kreoi, um, it doesn't have the connotation of being personally unworthy. It just means it attaches to the deeds that we do as servants. And it's saying that there is no extra worth that attaches to them. In other words, there's no payment due them. We're just doing what servants are meant to do. Now, that looks random. What's that got to do with the other teachings about little ones and about forgiveness and about dependency on God? And I submit to you that it sums it all up because it is in its own way saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Here's the thing. Everything the Pharisees did, they did to get worth. Uh, th what they did, they did to impress God and impress people. You find that throughout the Gospels. Uh, when they paid tithes and gave their alms and made sacrifices and prayed their prayers in the public places, they were doing it with an eye towards what people were going to think and with an eye towards impressing God. Uh, they added to their sense of worth by their holy behavior, and uh, it was a form of religious idolatry. In Pharisee religion, you got life from belonging to the holy club. You're one of the insiders, which is why they judged the little ones. They got life from the contrast. And the Pharisees, you got life from feeling religiously superior to people, so you never extended unlimited forgiveness to others. And the Pharisees got life from their performance, so they could never bring themselves to wholly rely on God to change their heart. They're too busy performing for him, trying to earn it. And what Jesus is saying here, folks, and this is what he's been saying throughout these 10 verses, is simply this. Don't be like that. 
do the opposite of that. In contrast to the Pharisees and so much religion, have a relationship with God, cultivate a relationship with God that is life-giving and transforming so that you don't need to be judging the little ones to give yourself a sense of worth. You don't need to be blocking them from the kingdom, but rather you're, you're empowered to extend to them this outrageous, unconditional, accepting love. And in contrast to the Pharisees and so much religion, cultivate a relationship with God that's life-giving and transforming so that you don't ever think that you're above extending someone forgiveness even seven times a day, but rather knowing that you've been forgiven an infinite debt, extend endless, unlimited forgiveness towards others. And in contrast to the Pharisees and so much other religion, religion, cultivate a relationship with God that frees you to be totally dependent upon him, humble before him, asking him to increase your faith, and therefore your faithfulness. And if you do that, you'll grow in a way that you'll find that eventually you're uprooting mulberry trees in your life and watching them be cast into the sea. And in contrast to the Pharisees and so much religion, have a relationship with God that frees you from the need to strive to seek repayments from God or from others. Rather, and here's the punchline, folks, when you love... When you love, don't do it to impress God as though he's going to like you more because of it. And when you love, don't do it to impress people. But rather, when you love, you do it just because that's the kind of person that you are. I don't love to become a child of God, but rather love because you are a child of God. And this is just what children of God do. In the same way that the servant just does what the servant does for no other reason, no other looking for repayment, so also as children of God, do what you do because that's who God is making you to be. Not because you're going to get little points from God and points from other kind of people. And when you serve and when you sacrifice for others, and when you, when you swim upstream in the culture, don't do it to impress God and don't do it to impress other people, but rather do it because this is who you are. This is, this is what it means to be a kingdom person. This is what it means to be a child of God. When you care about the poor and you welcome the outcast and, and, and you, you, you live out the kingdom, do it not to become a child of God, but do it because you are a child of God. And this is just what children of God do. You're a child of God when you're surrendered to Christ. And, and he fills you with his spirit, which means he fills you with his love and he fills you with his peace. And you've got Jesus' DNA running throughout your veins. And, and, he, and he's putting off the old self and he's putting on the new self. And he's transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. So when that happens, this is just what it looks like. You do what a servant does. There's no repayment for that. You're not earning rewards or anything. No, you're just manifesting what is true in your life. Don't be like the Pharisees. That's empty religion, striving. And whenever you're striving, you're going to find yourself judging the little ones. You're going to find yourself extending limited forgiveness, if any. You're going to find yourself not relying on God, but trying to be independent. And there's no life in that at all. Rather, against all of that, have a total relying relationship with God, a dependent relationship with God, yielding to his kingdom-building influence in your life. And you will find, if you yield, that instead of judgment, you're having this outrageous love towards all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. And you just bless them and you're free. And you'll find that your capacity uh, to, in love, help a brother or sister out who's going astray, and then to extend forgiveness to them unlimitedly, it, it grows and grows and grows. And your capacity to live in community grows and grows and grows. And your capacity to depend on God and be free of self-righteousness grows and grows and grows. There's no points in the kingdom. The kingdom means the point system has been collapsed. The only thing that matters is reality. And the reality is that when you're surrendered to him, he starts building your kingdom from the inside out, which frees you to love outrageously, to forgive outra outrageously, 
and to live in total humble dependency upon him. I'm going to close in prayer here. Before I do that, I want to say this. This is seminar training. This is this teaching here. The goal of this is to take it outside of here and to apply it to our lives. And so to help folks, students, all of us grow the kingdom, we've got these little assignment sheets. It's not legalism here. I wish I could give tests and flunk people if they didn't do it, but I can't. So we're just relying on your good graces here, but, but it's there to help you. And so we've got these, these sheets at the back of the auditorium and at the hub. And we encourage you to pick those up and to engage in those assignments. Uh, if, if God does something in your life, something happens as a result of it, please tell us. We want feedback on this. How, how, how is it going? We want to make this into a conversation. Um, if you have any need whatsoever, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward here, and they're available to pray with you, anything that's going on in your life, any struggles, or maybe you just need to, this morning, surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Come forward and talk to the, our prayer team. So the prayer team, would you come up here? And I want to close with this benediction. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord God, that you and your mighty power would be transforming our hearts from the inside out. Free us from religion. Free us from Phariseeism. Free us from performance mindsets. Free us from thinking we can do it on our own. Free us then, Lord, from judgments where we f- we're bottom feeders. We feed off of people rather than feeding people. Free us, Lord God, to agree with you about every person that we see that they have unsurpassable worth. Free us, Lord God, to be, be, be moving towards community, swimming upstream in this culture of individualism, to move in authentic community where there are people who can be mirrors in our life and in love confront us. Free us to be forgivers, people who have a capacity to forgive endlessly. Free us, Lord God, to have a humble mindset that realizes that without you, we can do nothing, but with you, we can do all things. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Build your kingdom in us. Build your kingdom through us. Help us to not be like the Pharisees, but rather to be like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.